0: Uh, I don't know how many of you know it. I became a pastor about ten years ago this month this uh November the nineteenth thank you thank you um uh and um this November the nineteenth was ten years uh this it will be ten years and i um I wanted to just thank you for again for the opportunity to be your pastor, because um, I don't just love being a pastor, I actually like to be yours, and this is a great church family, and I love being part of it, and love being part of it with you, and um, also appreciate the time uh, out of the pulpit this last week. Uh, Karen and I got up to Chicago to get our semi-annual dose of portillos, uh, Italian beef and sausage sandwiches, and... um, some shopping on Michigan Avenue and uh, that kind of stuff. So appreciate you uh, allowing us the opportunity to do that and to uh, and to be away. It's good for our marriage and and uh, therefore good for our ministry to get away every now and then and do some things just the two of us. So, um, want to open God's Word with you this morning and see what He has to say about the ordinances of the church. Now. Uh, you may not be familiar with that term. You may have grown up in a church that used the word sacrament, and if you did, that's okay. Uh, sacrament is a perfectly good word. There's nothing uh, wrong with it necessarily. Uh, it comes, fr- comes into English from Latin. Uh, it's, the Latin word is sacramentum, and it translates the Greek word uh, musterion, which means Uh, something that was not revealed in the past, which is now made known or revealed uh, to us who are part of the church. Um, And so it's a perfectly good word. We use the word ordinance around here because uh, these are the things which are ordained specifically by the Lord that we would practice them as part of the church. Uh, And... uh, You know, I know that Jim gave a message on the church this last week. I haven't had a chance to listen to it yet. Uh, But I hope that he talked with you about the fact that Jesus Christ loves the church and sacrificed his life for her. And as a result of that, it is literally impossible for a person to be a follower of Jesus Christ and not be connected to a local church. It is literally impossible. If Jesus loves the church, then those who are his followers ought also to love the church. Amen? Amen. Now, not to say that that everything is hunky-dory with the church, right? Uh, Because we are fallen people who are called out of darkness into, uh, into the marvelous light of Christ. We have been brought from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear Son, but we are not necessarily all perfected yet, which is why... When people tell me I don't want to go to church, the church is full of hypocrites, I tell them it's not full, come on in. <laughs> we got lots of empty seats, <laughs> all right? Um, why? Well, because uh, we, as the church, are, are still fallen people that have not yet experienced everything that, um, that we will one day experience as we are perfected. But uh, I also want to just just kind of back up a little bit and talk about what are the things that define a church. I hope Jim covered a little bit of this last week, so this isn't totally new ground for you. But there are three things, historically, that the Reformers would say, and that I would agree with, are biblical things that define a church, that if you lack any one of these three things, you do not have a church. You may have something it may even be a spiritual something, but it's not a church necessarily. And those three things are, first of all, the right preaching of God's Word. Uh, God is a preacher who sends preachers who come preaching, who deliver, the, the, who deliver God's Word to people. And uh, when they either do so in the form of the writing of God's Word or in the explaining of God's Word later when the canon is completed. Uh, And you have to have preaching in a church. That's one of the reasons we devote a big chunk of our worship service every week to uh, me standing up here and explaining God's Word. It's part of what the Bible outlines as being biblical uh, in the practice of the church's life and so in the in the preaching of the gospel and in the ex- explanation of the scriptures the word of god is proclaimed and then you also have to have the right practice of church discipline so that the gospel is protected amen because what happens is that as the gospel goes forth ideally people are converted by the holy spirit and brought into fellowship with the people of God and baptized into the body of Christ by the Holy Spirit, and when that happens, they ought are to live the new life that God ordains for them. But sometimes even those of us who are trying to be faithful get off a little bit, and then a church discipline is there to bring us back so that the gospel is protected, so that the the name of Jesus Christ is held in esteem, not just within the church, but outside of the church. So that people don't say what they often say, church is full of hypocrites, people who don't live up to the truths that they, pers- they profess. So we both proclaim the gospel and we protect the gospel. Well, there's one other aspect, and, and it ought to be part of every church, and that is the right practice of the ordinances of the church. And those, there are two, baptism and communion. And what you do with them is this, is that they are living dramas, in a sense, that we enact, so that the gospel is not just proclaimed and protected, but also the gospel is put on display. The gospel is seen. It's enacted, and we participate in it as uh, worshipers of the true God, we participate in and pro- and proclaim the gospel as we participate in the ordinances, and we put it on display so that it can be seen, so that if you're a visual learner, not just an auditory person, you've got something. And in, if you're a participatory, kinesthetic kind of a person, you've got something. You're doing this together, and you're participating in it. And you're enacting the gospel and great truths associated with what Christ has done for us and how he accomplished it as you participate in the ordinances of the church. So, with that as a background, we want to look first at communion or the Lord's Supper. And we're just going to look at a few verses. Uh, If you've got your Bible there, Matthew chapter 26, we're going to look at the Lord Jesus' institution of communion. On the, the, on the, at the last Passover that he celebrated. So if you've got your Bible there, Matthew chapter 26, verse 26 through 29. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. Now, what's happening this night? This is, this is Jesus, this is Thursday night. Of Holy Week. This is the last week of Jesus' life. This is the last Thursday he will celebrate before his death. It's the last Passover. And uh, after this, he's going to lead his disciples out. They're going to go to Gethsemane, and Jesus is going to pray, and they're going to sleep. And then Jesus is going to wake them up, and he's going to pray, and they're going to sleep. And then he's going to wake them up, and he's going to pray, and and then the betrayal is going to happen. This is one of the very last events of Jesus' life. And what they're doing is giving, uh, giving thanks to God and celebrating Passover together. And what he's going to do is give them a ceremony that's going to give Passover an entirely new meaning. Now, Uh, I don't know how well everybody knows their Bible, but I'll just back up here and talk a little bit about Passover and what it's about. Passover is, try to imagine, New Year's, Christmas, 4th of July, all rolled into the same holiday. And that's what it is in the Jewish calendar. It's the first feast of the year. It's the first feast that they are given. It's the night where they celebrate their independence. They're getting out of Egypt. Which is all that Exodus is about. Exodus is about getting out. And that's this Passover celebrates the night when they got out. And if you remember, if you watched the Charlton Heston movie, right? Ten Commandments, and they have ten plagues. This is the last one. Because here's what's going to happen God tells Moses, You take a lamb and you keep it in your house for a couple of days, make sure that it is perfect. That it's without spot, without blemish, without any kind of sores or anything, and you keep it in your house. And at the appointed day, at twilight, you take that lamb and you slaughter it, and you take the blood of that lamb and you smear some on this doorpost and on this doorpost and on the lintel over the door. Anybody notice what that makes? It says, you smear it on there, and then what's going to happen is this. At dark, the death angel will go through the whole land of Egypt, and he will go through slaughtering the firstborn of every person who has not put their trust in the blood of the Lamb to save them. And the death angel will strike every Egyptian house from the lowest slave all the way up to the house of Pharaoh himself. And he will claim every firstborn son in that house. Even the firstborn of the livestock will die that night. He says, but when I see the blood on your door, I will pass over you and I will not come into your house and I will not take your firstborn. And on that night a great cry goes out up over Egypt and Pharaoh says y'all get out of here leave. And God says my firstborn Israel is getting out. And they all eat their passover lamb in haste they eat of the flesh of that lamb that they've slaughtered and God leads them out, and they go out laden with treasure because the Egyptians are eager to see them go. And every year after that, at the beginning of every year, God says, you're to celebrate the Passover, the night that I passed over you, but I slew the Egyptians so that you remember that I am the Lord your God who brought you out of slavery in the land of Egypt. Now, Jesus is on his last Passover, and as he's celebrating it with his disciples, he makes it plain that he is giving them a new meaning, that this is a different kind of celebration. That night, he's going to be taken from them. He's going to be examined by the priests and the rulers, and he's going to be found, just like that lamb, to be without spot without blemish, innocent, and perfect. And then he's going to be condemned to die, and he is going to die at twilight the next day, at the time of the evening sacrifice. And by his blood, he's going to ensure that those who trust in him, the perfect Passover lamb, will be covered by his blood, and the death angel will not strike them. Instead, God's own firstborn son, is going to die in their place. And so Passover becomes, on this night, a covenant meal by which we symbolically eat the flesh of the lamb and we are covered by the blood of the lamb and set free from slavery to Pharaoh, Satan, sin, death, and hell. And we are led, then, by our Redeemer into the promised land. Amen? Did we get a better one than they did? Yes, indeedy. Yes, we do. And now, when we take communion, it's not a salvific act by itself. Uh, In other words, you know, the, the, uh, the... the Latin term that that sometimes gets used in certain circles, is ex opere operato, by the act performed. And, And there is a belief that is out there in certain circles that as you perform the act, well, then God grants you salvation. That is not what this is about. This symbolizes the reality of salvation that you have already received. You don't receive it by doing this. You understand what I'm saying? Nod your head, yes. Yes, I understand. Okay. I like talking to my kids sometimes. All right. <laughs> Everybody clear. All right. I want to make sure that everybody's clear on that because I don't want anybody to be confused in any way that thinks that they are having, when, they're, when they eat the communion bread and the grape juice, that somehow this is earning them favor with God. It's not. It's not about earning favor with God. It's about expressing thankfulness to God for what he has done for me in Christ at the cross. That with his blood shed for me at the cross, he purchases salvation for me. And that I place my trust in the blood of the lamb to cover me so that God will pass over me and my sin and bring me into the promised land. Amen? All right. So I might still die, but the death angel is not staying at my house. He can only visit. Christians don't really die. I don't know if you know that. They do not really die. Yeah, they eventually they come to a point where their heart stops beating, brain stops pumping, you know, you you flatline and all that. But you know what happens? You open your eyes in the presence of Jesus. That is a totally different deal than opening your eyes in an agony of torment and fire. Amen? You do not really die as a Christian. Non-Christians really die. Christians don't. And when the death angel comes for a Christian, it's promotion day. It's the day when you go into the presence of God for eternity. And so what communion is about is that Jesus is my substitute. He is broken that I might be healed. He is killed that I might live. His blood is spilled so that mine would not have to be. And my sin is paid. Jesus dies in my place so that I don't suffer eternal death in hell. It doesn't get any better than that. And this is the cost that is paid to bring me redemption from slavery to sin and Satan and death and hell. And I get out. And Jesus says, one day I'm going to celebrate this with you again. If you want to look it up, it's in your Bible. Go to Revelation and you'll find it. The great wedding supper of the Lamb. When we have this giant feast laid out for us by Jesus himself and we celebrate and we drink wine and we eat and we have a party for all eternity with our Lord and Savior. And Jesus says that as we celebrate communion, it's just a taste of what is to come with the Lord in eternity. That's exciting. This is a symbol, but it's a great symbol of some deep truth that has rich application to my life and to yours. Amen? All right. Now there's another ceremony, and I want to go to uh, Romans chapter 6, verses 1 to 11, and look at that with you. This is baptism. Okay? Romans 6, verses 1 to 11. will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Well, uh, Paul has just been preaching the gospel, and he is preaching it about how sin is not counted against you because of God's grace, and how God's grace provides a better way of obtaining righteousness than works, and that you can't do enough good stuff to merit God's favor. And he has been preaching it in the first five chapters. And as uh, one of my seminary professors used to tell us, gentlemen, if you have not preached the grace of God to the point that someone could get the idea that you might abuse it, you haven't really preached it. And Paul is doing, has been doing it to that level, and he says, well, now some of you might be thinking, whoa, can I, I just ought to sin a lot then, that I would have more grace. And Paul says, no, 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 don't, don't do that. Don't do that. Don't abuse the grace of God. Don't, uh, don't be presumptuous on the grace of God. Uh, and he's quick to point out the fallacy of that thinking, and he bases it on our baptism. He says that when we're baptized, what we do is we're identifying ourselves with Jesus. That just as if when he died on the cross, we died with him. And our old self, or, our, or what Paul here calls uh, elsewhere, our sin nature, or our old man, died with Jesus that when we are baptized, we're publicly identifying ourselves as I am placing my trust in that man. And my old self is going into the ground with him. So that when my old sin nature is crucified and then buried with Jesus, that part of me dies with Jesus. Now, one thing that is common to all things that are dead... As they do not reanimate. They stay dead. They don't do anything, really. They just sort of lay there, right? Why? Because they're dead. And Jesus said, I mean, Paul says here, look, when your old man was was crucified with Jesus, it was killed. So don't be getting down giving him mouth to mouth. Okay? That was when you were baptized in Jesus you were you buried that old man and you were raised to new life and that's the picture that you're supposed to get with baptism that that as we go under the water this is why we practice immersion baptism here because of the symbolism that's there also because of what the word means it means to dip in the water uh you As the person goes under the water, it symbolizes them being buried with Jesus. Their old life being put to death with Jesus and being buried with him. And then just as Jesus came back to life and was raised from the dead, so they also get new life, come up out of the water and are raised to new life. And their old stuff is washed off of them. Now, maybe the fact that we do our baptisms in the Great Oaks Pond doesn't really communicate the old gunk being washed away quite so well, but you get the idea that you're having a bath, in a sense, and all your funkiness from your old life is being rinsed off of you. Why? Because it was buried with Jesus, and you are raised up to new life with Jesus, that the same power which raised Jesus Christ from the dead also gives you and me new life. And the same power which raised Jesus from the dead will also raise me from the dead and you from the dead if you have placed your trust in Jesus Christ and been identified with him. And so um, so look at, look at verse 5 here and, and following here. Look at these verses. Paul says that if we're united with Jesus in his death, we're also united in his resurrection. Uh, And why why is that the case? Well, anybody who dies does so because they are paying the penalty of sin. Did you know that? The wages of sin is what? Death. So anybody who dies dies because they're paying the penalty for sin. Jesus paid the penalty for sin not for his own sin, but because my sin and your sin and the sin of the entire world was placed on him by God so that when he died, he paid the penalty for everybody's sin. So when a person dies, they die because they're paying the penalty for sin. But because we are connected to Jesus, and Jesus was a sinful man, I mean was a sinless man, because Jesus was a sinless man, Death couldn't keep its hold over him, right? It didn't have a rightful claim on his life, so he has to rise. But when our sin dies with Jesus, we have to rise too. Because it no longer has a rightful claim on me either. Because my sin died with Jesus. So it's taken away from me, put on him, and since he's able to rise, I'm also able to rise a neat thing and so since we are jesus followers and identified with him in baptism we are not to live under the rule of sin and death anymore but we're to live like people who are alive to god in jesus christ so here's the bottom line basically out of this passage jesus death gives us freedom from having to obey sin and suffer from death uh, when he died he took our sin penalty for us to the grave with him he made he killed it and he made it suffer death and so now we're free to live the new life that Jesus offers to us and our baptism symbolizes that that we're that our old manner of life is buried with Jesus and we are raised up to new life right now and given the power of that same power that raised Jesus from the dead to live out our new life. Washed clean of our sin. And so Paul is pointing out to the Romans a choice. You can either live in slavery to what was already put to death on your behalf through Jesus' death and burial and resurrection, or you can live in the resurrection power of Jesus, the new life that he died to bring you. He says, how can we who died to sin still live in it any longer? We can't. Why? Because our sin was put to death. So we now have freedom. We have cleansing from all of that mess. And we don't have to live under it anymore. And lest anybody be confused, baptism is also not a salvific thing. You don't get saved by being baptized. Whether you got baptized as a baby or whether you got baptized as an adult, getting wet at church did not save you. What does save you is faith in Jesus Christ. And baptism symbolizes identifying yourself with Jesus Christ so that your sin is buried with him and that you receive the new life that he offers all those who trust in him. And by being baptized, you're making public profession of your faith. I believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins and that my sins were buried with him. And I'll be symbolically buried with him also. And then I'll be raised to new life because God brought Jesus into the world to die for my sins to bring me new life. Not just new life in the hereafter, but new life in the here and now that I might be changed and transformed and made into a new creature who lives a different kind of life than I used to live. Amen? Amen. Oh, man, come on, wake up. All right, amen, amen. To live the new life that Jesus offered himself to, for, for my sake to give me. Jesus died on the cross to give me new life. So, a couple things that I want to just draw out by way of application on these these two points here. Uh, Number one, we must, we must celebrate the ordinances. Why? Because Jesus ordained them. He commanded us to do this. Uh, Not simply because it's a command, but because these are things that as we participate in them, they do strengthen our faith. They do provide spiritual nourishment to us. And they remind us of some great truths that we know, but that we don't remind ourselves of often enough. And so, you know, it's pretty easy if you're uh, a regular attender here to participate in communion. Uh, It happens on the first Sunday of every month. Be here next week. You'll get to participate. And you'll get a reminder of the fact that Jesus' body was broken so that yours would not have to be. His blood was shed to cover over you so that God would pass over your sin and not put you to death. You'll get that reminder next week. Be here. Uh, we also do baptisms. Now, I would love it, and this is something I have, a kind of a hobby horse that I ride with the elders about. Uh, I would love it if we had a baptismal in the church building where we could do them as part of our worship service. But until that day comes, if you've not been baptized, you need to see me, and we will find a way. We will go to Pierce. We will go out to Great Oaks and chop a hole in the ice. We will do something, okay? If you've not been baptized, let me just tell you this, okay? I'll go on record with this. If you have not been baptized, and given public testimony of your faith in Jesus Christ, then you are in sin if you are a believer in Jesus Christ. Because Jesus commands you to do that. And, so, and Jesus, in fact, did it, even though he was sinless. So if it's good enough for Jesus, it ought to be good enough for you too. Amen? If you've not been baptized and you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you need to obey the Lord, follow his example, and get baptized. And I will be happy, and Jim will be happy, to hook you up. And you can go through this, and it will strengthen your faith, I guarantee you. Uh, We're going to plan a service here in just a couple of weeks uh, out at Pierce. I've talked to Ben this morning. Okay, If you want to get baptized, see me. We will baptize you. And I guarantee you it will be a powerfully strengthening experience in your life. Of reminding you of the new life that Jesus died and was buried to bring to you. Last thing these ordinances ought to remind us of. You are not your own. Paul says that in 1 Corinthians 6. Different context, but it still applies. You are not your own. You have been bought with a price. Jesus Christ Has shed his blood, died on a cross, endured scourging, endured a crown of thorns, endured mocking and torment, endured a human life. Have you ever thought about what it would, what it cost God to send the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, to live a life as a human being? on a fallen planet surrounded by fallen people and then to finally get tortured and killed by the same fallen people that he had created perfect but who rebelled against him and fell? Why did Jesus do that? Because of you and because of me and because he loved us and he bought us with his blood. And baptism and communion symbolize that reality. That he died to bring you new life. That his blood covers your sin. That he passes over you because you are covered by the blood of the lamb. But he did not do this so that we could simply get our fire insurance, get marked and stamped for heaven, and then uh, go on conducting life as we have been. No. No. He died on the cross to redeem you from a yoke of slavery, to sin and Satan and hell and death. And if these ordinances mean anything, what they mean is that because we have been bought with a price, because we we do not belong to ourselves, but to God the Father who paid for us with the blood of Jesus, that we ought to honor the Lord with our life. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for these ceremonies that remind us and teach us, even as we participate in them, remind us and teach us of the great truths of the gospel, and they put it into practice in our lives and show us the things that you mean for us to learn about the gospel, the fundamental truth that. Jesus Christ came and was sacrificed and killed and buried. Pay for my sin and the sin of these and every other person who has ever lived or ever will live on this planet to bring us into new life and a new relationship with you through faith. And Father, I pray that we would, because we are aware of the great cost that was paid for us, honor the Lord who set us free from slavery to bring us into the new life of the children of God. Father, we pray that we would live in accordance with the great truth that we know and live up to our baptism and the truths that we celebrate in communion. Father, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.